Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, my friends, I want to let you all know that my very first book, The Path of an Eagle, How to Overcome and Lead, after being knocked down, is now available for pre-order. I'll make sure the link is available in the show notes below. All right, my friends, let's do the show. There is a story for everyone here because every story matters. Welcome, everyone, to the Storybooks. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the story box together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. Did you know that some of the oldest cultures in the world have mastered the art of raising happy, well-adjusted children? And what can we actually learn from these older cultures? My guest today is none other than Michaeline Duclef. Now, for those of you that don't know who she is, you're really going to enjoy this conversation, I have no doubt. If you want, if you are a parent or you are going to be a parent one day, this is definitely the conversation for you. So Michaeline Duclef is the author, the New York Times bestselling author of Hunt, Gather, Parent, what ancient cultures can teach us about the lost art of raising happy, helpful little humans. The book describes a way of raising helpful and confident children, which mums and dads have turned to for millennia. It also explains how American families can incorporate this approach into their busy lives. And I'm expanding that to Australian families and pretty much global families if you are listening globally, which I'm pretty sure some of you are. Michaeline wrote the book after traveling to three continents with her three-year-old daughter, Rosie. So she went to the Maya, the Inuit, and the Hudzabee families, and they all showed her how to tame tantrums, motivate kids to be helpful, and build children's confidence and self-sufficiency. Michaeline is also a global health correspondent for NPR's Science Desk, where she, where she reports about disease outbreaks and children's health. Health. Michaeline has a doctorate in chemistry from the University of Berkeley, California, and a master's degree in viticulture and enology from the University of California, Davis, and a bachelor's degree in biology from Caltech. In 2015, Michaeline was part of the team that earned a George Foster Peabody Award for its coverage of the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. As a science journalist, Michaeline has reported on a broad range of topics from vaccination fears and the microbiome to beer, biophysics, and dog psychology, among many, many others. She has a German Shepherd dog named Savannah. She lives in Texas with her husband and her daughter, Rosie. And this is one of my favorite conversations on the story box, not just the fact that we got to talk about how dogs can help us understand how to parent better, but actually what's happening to how we are parenting today and what's happening to our kids. There's a lot in this one, so I hope that you guys really, really enjoy it. I have to get Michaeline back on, on the show because there's a lot that we didn't actually cover that I do want to cover for you guys. Um, but I hope that you guys really, really enjoy this conversation nonetheless. If you do, then please share it around to your friends and your family. Let everyone know about this one. Uh, don't forget to leave a rating and review over an Apple podcast. It just goes a long way in helping to support the show a little bit more. 
And don't forget that my very first book, The Path of an Eagle, How to Overcome and Lead After Being Knocked Down, is now available for pre-order. It is getting so much closer to the launch of my book, and I'm super, super excited about it. So I hope that you guys can go and get a copy of the book, and let me know what you think of it when you do end up getting a copy and, and reading it as well. It's available on hardcover, as well as it will be on audio book and on digital too. All right, my friends, you know what time it is. It's time to journey with me into the story box as we learn more about how to become a better parent and we listen to the incredible wisdom, the advice, and the stories from Dr. Michaeline Ducleff. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. I've been very much looking forward to speaking with you. Before we dive into your backstory and how in the world you got from studying uh, viticulture and enology to writing about uh, a book on parenting, as well as reporting on diseases and outbreaks and all that sort of stuff from NPR. My very first question for you is what does success look like for you? You mean personally or as a parent or career wise or <laughs> Let, let's go one? with, let's go with personally. And then does it sort of tie into career wise as well? I mean, I definitely think that there's an element of, I think when I was younger, um, I success really was focused on career. I think as I've gotten older, I think success has focused more on like feeling good, you know, like, like enjoying what I'm doing and, um, feeling kind of mentally healthy, which I think is lost. Like you say, in, in our culture, I think that that element has been devalued and deprioritized in our lives. And I think that that spills over into how we raise children. We value other aspects almost to the detriment. And, um, and writing this book taught me personally that actually what makes me feel good and what, you know, day to day feels like success is connecting with other people, collaborating, helping other people, you know, and at the same time, feeling proud of the work that I do, which, um, yeah, that's what success looks like. I love diving into the big question straight away. So <laughs> I want to dive straight in, um, which is why has culture and society gone so far away from, I guess, feeling good as a parent, teaching our kids the right way, all those yeah. sort of things? I mean, it's a complex question, but I think that there's some like big triggers or big root causes for it. I think one of the things that has happened is that we've lost the teachers. So there in the book, I talk about how the Catholic church is kind of a, have been, has been involved in this process, but for basically all of human existence, so we're talking about 200,000, 200, 300,000 years, people raised children in groups. So there was a mom and a dad, um, and then there were these other people. And these other people, it, saying other people sounds like they're like on the periphery, but they weren't. They were like key people that loved and took care of the child just as much as the, the mom and the dad. And we've lost these people in the home over about a 500 year period. Um, we've slowly kind of whittled down this cooperative parenting approach to like one or two people. And when we did that, we lost the teachers because these people not only helped raise the children, but they also taught the new parents what to do. Um, and so about 200 years ago, parents started kind of being like, oh, holy cow, what do I do? And this is actually when you see the rise of parenting books and classes and parenting experts and stuff. But before then, we, did, we didn't need that because we had the experts right there. And so in the book, basically, I go to places where those experts are still there. And because those experts are, experts are still there, the traditions and the value and the techniques that have been like tried and true over thousands of years, perhaps even longer, are still very strong in the household and still very um, present and valued. Um, and so that's really what the book is about, is bringing back these like ancient ways of interacting with children. And, you know, you say you're not a parent, but these are ways that people interact with each other as well, right? It's not just the parent-child relationship. I say that I wrote a parenting book, but I really fixed my marriage because once I started interacting with my husband in the same way as my daughter, Rosie, in the book, our marriage really got better too. So that skill of, of being, of relating to other people was taught to, to, to parents, to individuals, 
by this like extended family. And it's not always family. It's, you know, neighbors, friends, but very typically intergenerational. I've got quite a few questions coming from that response, but I wanted to ask you where along the line, so to speak, did this shift start to happen? Like we were talking about thousands of years, right? So no, no, we're not talking that long. No, no, no. We're talking about, it probably started about, like I talk about in the book. Um, I think it, we're talking about centuries to a thousand years. So um, there's a study, this incredibly interesting study um, from the University of British Columbia. And now that one of the scientists is at Harvard, where they look at actually when this started changing in Europe and around the world, because it's kind of shifted in a lot of places. And they, they trace it back to the Catholic church having these policies that started making it illegal to marry relatives. Now, we don't want to marry our cousins for reasons, you know, very good reasons, you know? Um, and so they said, Hey, it's illegal to marry your cousin. Okay. And, um, but then over the years and the centuries, and I think this was started about 1500, but I should double check that. Um, <laughs> over the centuries, these rules got more and more and more. And the Catholic church kind of became obsessed with this. And some people think that it's a way that the Catholic church, um, had gained more power because they broke up very powerful families, but they started saying, okay, you couldn't marry your second cousin, your third cousin, your fourth cousin. And at the end of it, you can't marry in-laws, right? I mean, me marrying an in-law is totally fine biologically. Um, and by the end of it, I think they were up to like six cousin, which like you and I are six cousins, right? I mean, some level. So like, there was just no reason for it. But what this study shows is that process broke up these big families that were like living near each other and together and slowly eroded, um, you know, the traditional family, which is a lot of people living near each other and interacting with each other all day long to raise children and, and really function in life. You know, there's other reasons. There's the rise of individuality, individualism in Western culture, the rise of the industrial revolution probably played a role. Um, rise of privacy, some people tell me, you know, there's other reasons, but I think this is a really key one. Um, and you, and this study actually showed that the longer the Catholic church has influenced the culture, the smaller these extended families are, and the more, more the nuclear family um, is present. So there is this kind of erosion effect that the Catholic church has had, which is totally fascinating to me, but it's had a huge impact on our lives. Because if you think about it, if you grow up in a home where you've got a couple siblings, you know, an aunt, a grandma, maybe some cousins, maybe a neighbor, you know, uncle, all living in your house. You have a very different set of skills socially than, you know, living with mom, dad, and one or two kids, right? Um, you become much more accommodating, you become, you know, less, less individualistic, more cooperative. And so this, like, you know, shrinking of the family has had massive, massive effects, not just on our parenting, but on our psychology as well. When we're talking about being a good parent, how much does religion sort of play a factor into that? And in terms of sort of the structure around discipline and raising a, a good, healthy child, does religion have any part of that? I mean, we're talking about the Catholic church, which I think is a, a set of rules and structures. And, and that's a largely a, a wider body of, re, of religious things. Um, is there any, truth to what I'm saying? Is there anything? You know, I don't, I don't study that aspect, but I didn't see that, you know, I went to places with very different religions. Um, and, and, and what, what is, what is very, what was very interesting to me and why I wrote this book is, is that if you, I've been traveling for my job at NPR for like a, a decade. Yep. And even before I started writing the book, I started to realize that wherever you go, you know, so if we're talking about on the side of a volcano in the Philippines to, you know, the Arctic to, you, you, you know, the Yucatan in Mexico, like wherever you really go, um, you see some very similar elements to parenting and relating to children. And it's, it's, it's actually very striking because these are very different places that have been separated through huge amounts of time. But people interact with the child in a very similar way when it comes to about four or five things. And if you look through Western history, you can find these things not that long ago. So the, the, the book is really showing you things that are independent of kind of cultural specifics of a place. Um, and, and I mean, it, 
some people don't believe me that this is very, you know, very consistent, but I'm not the first person to, to say this. There's an anthropologist, David Lancey, who studied childhood around the world his entire career. And he writes about this in books, but you talk to people that study childhood in different cultures and they all knows it, know this, that there's these givens that, and we, in Western culture, we've kind of veered off that path and lost those kind of core elements. And the book is really about bringing those back. And what they do, which is, is that they minimize conflict and maximize cooperation. And so that's, again, really what other parent is about is learning how to cooperate with your child, teach them to cooperate and, you know, bring the conflict down because Western culture is incredibly conflictual compared to other cultures. And as a direct quote from a psychologist, there's something inherently conflictual about the way we interact with people and with children, it can be really bad. So this is, the book is really about learning this other way, which is really common around the world. It's interesting as well. And I've always said too, and if you really like nail down on it, if you want to change a generation, you educate the kids, you change the kids. Yeah. For sure. For sure. And people are really good at kind of teaching kids to be themselves, yeah. you know, um, and so what that's that why you save time. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because when I was writing the book, I kind of came up with this formula about how you teach kids things. Um, and like in the middle of writing the book, I was realizing that I was teaching my kid all these things that I didn't realize I was teaching them mm. through this formula. It's very subconscious. Our culture just does it. Um, and and, but the, the beauty of it is that once you start to realize that you can really change it, right? You can say, well, I'm not going to teach, you know, them to be selfish, to be argumentative, to be conflictual, which is what we actually do. You know, I can teach them to be cooperative and generous and kind. And we try to do those things, but we don't have the tools and we're kind of doing the opposite with the way we interact with them right now. Mm. Kids are very observant. They're very... Oh, incredible. So we think this is something that's really weird. So in the book, I talk about like a handful of things that we do that are really, really weird. So something that Western culture does that you don't really find anywhere else is that we think teaching is involved. Teaching involves talking, mm. right? That you mm-hmm. that you teach a child something by instructing, instructing them. And I've actually been calling it instructing instead of teaching, you know, that you tell them how to do it. You like set up a lecture and you, the learning through other methods is kind of devalued. We know it happens, but we don't really believe it. But in fact, it's a super powerful way that children learn. You, you, you do not have to say a word. If they are there and they are invited to be involved, you know, every now and then um, to do a small task that contributes to that skill, they will learn it. It might take a little while, but they will absolutely learn it. And they're already learning all the things that way anyway that you don't realize is happening. So. And nowadays we have the advent of social media playing a, a huge role in educating our kids and yeah. we give them phones and social uh, and uh, like iPads and, and things like that. Very early on, we give them pretty much access to all these, I guess you could call it for lack of a better term. I think it's a, a little bit dangerous as a, for, for a kid at like three, four years old to have a social media account. Like it, it's not, it doesn't work, but that ha- actually happens in today's society. And, and we're, we're giving these kids the wrong kinds of tools and we're teaching them the wrong kinds of things. And I've just, yeah. I've, yeah, I've just noticed that it's, it's just contributing to a, a poorer society. If that well, makes sense. I think, yeah. I think that what we're, what we're teaching them with the phone um, and social media, which I feel like a lot of people don't realize, I didn't really realize that, um, until a psychologist pointed out to me is we are teaching them individualism, yeah. right? We're teaching them to be focused on themselves, to have to really engage in this task. that's really about them and not connected, not socially really connected to the people in their lives physically. Right. Um, it's a very individualistic tool. And from a very early age, that desire that children have to look at the world around them and be attentive to the world around them, you know, you're, you're eroding that desire by putting the, the phone in front of them. Right. And, and I think that can have really long-term repercussions um, because they become dependent on that tool for their 
well-being, right? There's a lot of studies that, that show that, right, like these these phones have incredible amounts of release incredible amounts of dopamine and kids become kind of uh, dependent on that dopamine. And so, I mean, there's just, but I think what a lot of people don't realize is that it really is a, is, is a, is a tool to teach individualism, yeah. you know, and, um, and one of the psychologists actually that studies the Mayan community that we went to is concerned because um, during the, the pandemic, all of the parents there had to get a phone to track COVID. The government bought them phones. And she said, she's, you know, she's like wondering like what's what before a lot of families had one phone or an iPad, but the, but the phone like exploded in the last couple of years in this little village. And she's like, you know, I don't know what impact that's going to have, but it's clearly this like tool of individualism. Um, and not to mention the dependency and dopamine and stuff like that. So, but I, I, I thought that was really interesting because I hadn't thought of it that way. I hadn't thought of it as like kind of antagonistic to cooperation and, and learning to, to, to work together with your, do things, so, you know, a very social, social yeah. activities. Right. So and it's, a, it's amazing how, how fast it's actually grown. Like yeah. it's only in the last couple of years too, because I grew up. Yeah early nine, oh, sorry, late nineties, early two thousands. And I, I wasn't allowed to have a phone until much later on in my life. Yeah. And if you wanted to sort of like do stuff, you went outside, you played, you, I, you, I remember playing with the, the street kids all, right. all the time. Like, but nowadays you barely see that if at all, like yeah. I'm, I'm blessed to be up here in, in the sunny coast in Queensland and there's like parks all, all, all around. And I love seeing kids just playing. Because it means yeah. they're getting off technology and they're socializing in in nature and with other yeah. kids too. It's a beautiful sight to see because I think we we need to get back to that that foundational part of play. <laughs> oh, <laughs> absolutely. And and I think you said the word right, like the connection with nature, right? I mean, humans have been connected very deeply with nature for you know, ever, right? And mm. and it has been very recently that there are kids that are completely disconnected from nature and the pandemic like made this worse. It's the adults that are completely connected, disconnected from nature. I mean, that's a big thing. I think parents also don't realize is like you, you have to work a little bit to, to show the child and, and build a connection with nature with that child. Right. If you are on your phone, you are, you know, on the computer, you're te- you're showing the child, you're teaching the child a relationship with technology. Right. But if you want that kid to go outside and play, then you need to show them how you have a relationship with nature, right? And so in the, in the book, I talk a lot about this formula, right? Like model, practice, and value or acknowledge. And, you know, if you're not modeling being outside, connecting with the birds, connecting with the land through, you know, uh, gardening or yard work or carpentry or, you know, any anything that's somewhat based on a natural product, um, Children will have a natural drive to do it, but they're going to be much more likely to want to do it. Right. And then giving them practice, giving them opportunities to practice. Hey, come help me in the garden. Come help me with the yard work. This is how children learn. Not when you tell them it's modeling and practicing and then saying, you know, valuing it like, wow, I really feel great after I garden. Wow. This, it feels so good to get outside and be outside, you know, prioritizing in your life. Like we're going to spend two or three hours a week outside. You know, like you, you know, I can work outside, right? I mean, most people can do some work outside. And Rosie and I just, before we moved to Texas into this little rural town where now we spend all the time gardening, you know, we would just go to the park and I would work or we go to the beach and I would work. And Rosie, and we would just be outside. And it was, you know, and I did this so, so she could have a relationship with nature and build that relationship on her own. Um, you know, we spent, um, time with this hunter-gatherer community in Tanzania called the Hadzabe. And it is just kind of mind-blowing how much time those children spend outside, yeah. right? We are talking about like 10 hours a day, right? And that is likely the way children evolved, right? Um, I mean, even up in the Arctic where kids have video games and cell phones and they still were spending six, seven hours out. out Side. And, and I think that that was one of the key differences is they had relationship with technology, but the parents taught them and introduced them and, and really built also a relationship with being outside. 
Mm. Um, I always joke around when we were up there in the Arctic, it was in the summertime. And one of the, the grandmother that we were with went out on this like seven, 10 day hunting trip where they go out on the land, they hunt. And, you know, she brought some of the kids with her, some of the older kids and stuff. So she had this, you know, she has this incredible connection with the land, right? But then when she got back, she's like, man, I've got to watch, I've got to catch up on CSI. You know, like she's like, (laughs) so, you know, it it wasn't, they're not exclusive of each other, right? Like a relationship with TV and media and a relationship with the land and outside. You can have both. You just have to make an effort to have both, you know, and that really is modeling, practicing it and and valuing it, you know? Yeah. I, I remember having a conversation with Johan Hari in his new book, Stolen Focus. And mm. he was talking about how we need just to spend some time away from our phones and technology. And he has what they call, like, I think it's like a lockbox. So you, mm. you put your phone in there. And mm-hmm. I haven't got one, but I'm trying my absolute best these days to just try and just now with a girlfriend and everything, it's a bit difficult because you want to talk all the time. But in saying that, I do try and find time to just be in nature, like early in the morning, for example, I'll go for a run and uh, do my things I need to do. But I, on Sunday, I last Sunday, actually, I went uh, to the beach and I just mm. spent over an hour or two hours, didn't touch my phone once, just enjoyed it. And it was so serene. It was so peaceful. I loved it. I'm like, I want to do more of this. <laughs> so, I mean, that's the thing is you have to do it to start to, and it takes time. Like, you know, you can, it can be very, uh, the feeling can be very uncomfortable at first because our brains are accustomed to that amount of dopamine. Right. And like cut, falling off that dopamine is uncomfortable in the same with kids, right. It, you know, falling off the dopamine of videos and classes and instructions and intention, you know, it, it makes you feel uncomfortable. But I think the key thing you said is like, once you get over that discomfort, check in and, and mm. see how it feels, you know? Um, I got off social media except for Twitter, uh, but I got off Facebook and everything else, I think like 2017 or something. And what, what I started doing was I started really checking in with myself while I was on it. Like, what is my mood like before I get on it? And then what's my mood like, like while I'm on it and like, maybe I'll stop using it if I start feeling kind of negative feelings. Right. And I started being like that I would get on it and get right off of it (laughs) because like immediately I was feeling like more anxious or, you know, upset about something. And it it started to be easy to get off of it because it was like, this is clearly having this negative impact on my mood and the same thing with the phone. Right. So once you start to like have these breaks, vacations from your phone, like I go all days on weekends. I actually didn't have a phone while I was writing the book. I didn't have a phone. Um, wow. But then I know it's crazy. Then when I went back to work, NPR made me get a phone again. But um, but yeah, I'll just leave. I will like leave. they were like, send it to me. And then they were like, you have to open it, Mike Lane. And I opened it. Like, you, you use it, Mike Lane. But but I, I will have Saturdays and Sundays where, you know, I'll check my mail in the morning, maybe. And then I'll just put the phone away all day long. And then Saturday, the same thing. And my mood by the end of Sunday is so different than, because, you know, I haven't been looking at the news. I haven't been thinking about work. You know, I haven't been hearing all whatever the people are complaining about on text messages. Um, and, and, and I actually don't want to go back to it on Monday. I'm like, I don't want to go back to this thing, but you, you know, you you can start to get in this positive feedback loop where it's easier and easier. You know, um, I, I think the problem is, is there's always a reason to have it. <laughs> you know, you can always come up with a reason. People tell me, but I'm a news reporter. And I'm like, well, I'm a news reporter too. You know, like, you know, you can, and, and one of the doctors at Stanford that I talked to about this, you know, she said like, it's just like drinking. There's always a reason you can have another drink. You can always convince yourself and you, that type of thinking is what's going to never get you off of it, right? Yeah. It really is just like, again, like prioritizing it. Like, no, this device makes me have negative feelings, makes my body feel bad, makes my mind feel bad. So why am I carrying it around? Mm. You know, there's, there is an addiction component to it. And to break that, you have to have breaks from it. You, like the, the, the doctor told me, she said, you know, it's all about, how much you use it in, in the intensity of the experience. Right. And so any break you take from it, like the lockbox or, you know, even if it's just like an hour a day, like you're going to start to bring down your like 
requirement of dopamine in your brain, you're going to start to reset your brain a little bit and it becomes like easier and easier. I actually, this is the last thing I'll say, but I actually started doing this when I, my first trip up to the Arctic, I spent two weeks out on this peninsula where there wasn't any phone coverage. And, um, I got back and I was just like, oh my God, like I feel so much better. And then I started using the phone again and it was the other way. I was like, oh my God, like I feel so much worse. And it took time to wean myself off of it, but oh my God, it was so, 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 so worth it. Cause you're right. Like we've lived our lives without them. You know, like I traveled for this book without a phone. Mm. <laughs> my husband's chagrin, but you don't, you don't need it. You can get around life. With, with without it, you know, and the fact that everyone's caring one means you can get around way easier. It's like we've created this society that makes it almost we need to depend on the phone. Well, we think we think we do. I, yeah. th- that is the problem, and that's the message that we've been sent, and we are sent constantly. So a lot of this book too is about kind of being conscious of the messages you're getting right? About how to be a parent, about what you need to do to be a good parent, you know? And one of the messages our society gives us all the time is that you can't function without a phone. Yeah. Now, maybe that's true. You can't function without a phone. I would argue most people can, but that is very different than carrying your phone around with you and checking it every three minutes, you know, but there is a very strong messaging component of you absolutely need a phone to be in society. Mm-hmm. And I, I will argue to the end that that is made up. Yeah. <laughs> I, I encourage people to read your book and in tandem with that, to read Johan Hari's book, Stolen Focus, because it's also interesting how they've created the phone. Like the, the addictive element is getting a notification, getting the vibration on the phone and, and in your pockets, like, Oh, someone's contacted me. Fantastic. Like it, with emails too, getting that ding or what a text message, whatever it is, it is so powerful, but yeah. I love it. How you were, you were talking about how we don't need to rely so heavily on it. We can get away from it. So it's a it's, choice. It's, you are choosing to use it right there. Yeah. And, and there's, there's another good book I'll recommend is, um, how to do nothing. I cited it in my book, this book, because she talks a lot about like, you're making a choice, right? And you, you have the right to a refusal. You really do. Um, and, and the thing is, we'll get back to parenting because the thing is, is if, if parents are struggling with screens and, and children, there's a couple of things. Um, you know, I can give you advice if you haven't introduced the screen, I would say, do not introduce, do not give a child a phone. I mean, like my, in, in the Mayan community, traditionally, children didn't get phones until they could pay for it, mm. right? So they had, to, they had to work, they had to pay for the phone, they had to pay for the service. And so kids didn't get phones until they were like 16, right? That's what I'm going to do with Rosie. Like, I'm like, I give her a phone. I don't even want a phone myself, right? She can buy it, mm. you know, because it's a very different brain at 16 than, than at six, right? But if you've introduced the, the screens and you're having problems with it, I think one thing to realize is that it, it will take time to wean a kid off. You know, it is, it, it, it is a very uncomfortable feeling if, yeah. there, if you, you know, um, but that goes away. There's like us on the other side, there's something. Um, but one of the, one of the tips that I found really useful is like, you have, they have to start kind of enriching their lives outside the technology, because if they've been on a screen so much, that other part of their lives, playing outside with friends, connecting with nature, socializing with friends, reading, playing games, imaginary games, is kind of impoverished, yeah, right? Because it hasn't been nurtured, right? Mm-hmm. And so one of the things you can do is start nurturing that, start finding things in your community that have nothing to do with the phone, people that don't use their phone, and start trying to slowly nurture that aspect. I mean, adults need to do this too, right? Your, your lives. But the number one thing that you can do is, is to have these periods of time where you're not using a screen. Yeah. And, and, and psychologists and psychologists tell me that the biggest problem is usually the parent is addicted to the screen, their phone. And, and it, it's, it's going to be really hard to get the kid off if you, if you are right. I mean, cause again, what's the formula model yeah. practice, right. And valuing and acknowledging. And when, every time you use it, you're valuing it and acknowledging your value of it. Right. Yeah. So 
Yeah, we were speaking about that just a moment ago, actually. So good, good to tie that in. And I wanted to ask you, this is more of a, it may seem like a, a, a dumb question, but I'm curious about it because I've got a German Shepherd. I, I knew I was going to bring this in. You've got a German Shepherd too. Is there anything that you've learned from your German Shepherd dog, Savannah, regarding parenting? Or- oh my God. I love this question and nobody's <laughs> ever asked me. And I even thought about writing a story about it, like what my German Shepherd, how my German Shepherd taught me to be a better parent. So there's a couple things. Number one, Savannah is German Shepherd. Um, but she is the most the calmest, mm-hmm. most gentle spirit that I one of them that I've encountered in my life. And she's in she's almost imperturbable. Now she will tell, she will speak her mind. <laughs> you know, she will, if you push her a little bit, she will growl. You know, if you're you're hurting, it'll be a little bit, you know, you know. But, you know, when the chihuahua comes, the neighbor chihuahua comes over and starts biting at her face, that little whippersnapper, she just sits there and hardly even like, and I channel that. <laughs> she has taught me to, to how not to react to the little, the little chihuahuas snapping at your face. Now, if they push it too far and they're going to hurt you. So little chihuahua is really my kid, right? They push it too far and they're really going to hurt you or you want to teach them. Yeah. All you need to do is a little growl, a little show of the teeth. You, just, you don't need to overreact, right? In a lot in our culture, we tend to overreact. Like, stop! What are you doing? We know lots of words. Mm-mm. All you need is a good look. You know, maybe a word or two. Maybe you need to walk away. <laughs> All the things that Savannah does incredibly well. The other thing that Savannah has done that, it, that, but I literally, when we got her, we got her right after I finished the book, and I was like, oh my god, she's like such a good parent, like. <laughs> You know, she doesn't like respond to things that don't need to be responded to, right? The big thing in the book is basically about shutting up, right? Like just let 99% of the time you can just be quiet, walk away, no arguing, be calm yourself. The child will become calm if you're calm. And Savannah does this amazingly, Um, amazingly, but she's not a pushover, right? She will growl. She will walk away, you know? Um, The other thing that she's done, which has been, really remarkable is I've used her as like a surrogate sibling for Rosie. And and because I'm the voice of Savannah, she can be the perfect sibling. (laughs) And I've taught her how to treat, you know, a a sibling and, you know, what you need to do, how you share, how you help, how you're gentle, how you have to accommodate for them because they're the, in this case, the younger puppy, you know, And, and, and I use her as this like way, because that's how a lot of parents do is, is teach generosity and kindness and respect um and accommodation through the siblings and in mm-hmm. in the um, responsibility of being a big sister or a big brother and so i use savannah that way and um i have to say i think it's worked amazingly like parents will comment like rosie really knows how to be a big sister like when she goes over to other people's houses and stuff so because she's because i can make her anything i want i have a voice it's like oh rosie Oh, oh, I'd like a piece of that candy too. What about your little sister? You know, you know, so anyway, I'm kind of crazy, but <laughs> no, I, I love it because I'm crazy too. I've got a shepherd and it's, it's interesting as well because I'm not a parent, but our, our dog, Alita Joy, uh, she is like you were saying, she has that that calming presence. And whenever I'm stressed or anxious, I go straight to her. And she'll like give me a hug or give me a kiss and just let me know it's going to be okay. But it's also interesting how if I'm reacting, she will try and de escalate mm. every yeah, situation. Bring it down. Like she'll come between if like my myself and my mom are having an argument or something, mm. she'll come in between us and mm. she will try and get rid of that argument somehow in, in the right. best way possible. Like it's, it's just a fascinating phenomenon how, how she does that. And I wanted to ask you, having said all of this stuff about parenting, I mean, there's so much more we could actually talk about. So maybe another time I'll need to bring you back on for a part two conversation. But having said all of this, what makes a good parent versus a great parent? Hmm. I mean, I think, you know, some, there's a couple of things that really changed me with Rosie. And, and I think one of them was being quiet, mm. you know, that for, and for several reasons. I think a great parent 
says very few things to a child. So in the book, I talk about like what autonomy looks like. Children absolutely need autonomy to be mentally healthy, to they grow, they gain confidence. You know, a lot of the mental health problems we have with kids in eventually young adults is they haven't had enough autonomy. And what autonomy looks like is a parent basically saying about two or three things to a child an hour. And if you go out and you look at parents at the park or wherever you are, there are not many parents that do that. Mm. And it's not the parent not interacting and not being there. And, but the, the parent is watching. Yeah. The parent is watching Rosie climb up the fig tree when she's four or three to see how far she, you know, or standing underneath her and being quiet, you know, but being there to, to catch her if she falls and watching and seeing, okay, how high can she go? What is her skill level like? When do I need to intervene? When can I let her go? Right. That is a great parent that like stands back a little bit and actually kind of actively checks themselves before they interfere. Mm. Because this is how children grow and feel confident and, have, and, and you know, don't feel stressed. Right. Mm. And there's this sense in our culture that the more you say to a child, the better parent you are. And that's really weird. And I would argue it's the other way around. I think the less you say to a child, the less you interfere and the gent- more gentle that interference is, just like talking about Savannah, you know, you know, a little growl versus a, you know, that's what makes a great parent. It's funny when we go out with people, I think sometimes they want to see like how I parent because of this book, you know, and I think sometimes they're disappointed because you don't see very much, you know, it's very, and it's very subtle. And I think that that's why a lot of this has been missed what's in the book, because you have to pay attention really closely. So I'll tell you a story. Um, the first time I went to the Maya village, um, I, they were chucking corn and the, the mom and the dad and, um, one of the moms and dads. And I was, and I felt like, okay, I need to help them shuck the corn. Like I'm here, I'm just sitting around. Like, so I start shucking corn and I can't do it. It's really hard. Like my fingers can't do it. And then all of a sudden, so all of a sudden I start to be able to do it. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm shucking corn. And then like, oh, I can do it now. And I got really excited then I looked down and I realized that the mom had been starting them for me. Uh. So she didn't say a word. She didn't jump in and grab the corn and make an instructional video about how you do it. She just facilitated it a little bit. And she made me believe that I was doing it. Mm. And that's how they teach. And eventually with that practice, my fingers would get stronger and I, I would be able to shuck the corn. Right. But the mom is, you know, just this little tiny help that the child doesn't even know the child thinks they're doing it on their own. That to me is like a great, a great parent. (laughs) I I remember having a conversation with Matthew McConaughey and asking him what, what makes a good parent as well. And the way he grew up, he's, he's there was no such word as can't in the house. Mm. I just remember the story of him him sharing. We both had uh, lawnmower stories. Oh, uh-huh. <laughs> funny enough, but it was very very much like it's not that you can't do it; it's that you're having a little bit of trouble. Yeah, you need some That's practice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I I think I, I kind of emphasize this in the book. It's like we really underestimate what kids can do physically. You yeah. know, like we grab the knife from them. You know, okay, if the knife is giant, okay, yeah, grab the knife and give them a smaller one, <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, if they start climbing on a wall, you know, go underneath them or gently take them to something that's safer, right? Like, like use that, like, desire to do things as, like, a way of, like, oh, yeah, like, pushing their growth. And, yeah. and you know, um, so absolutely, like, we just shut it down, Yeah. right? This is not safe. We, we baby-proof everything, you know? Um. We, we, you know, we did a piece about, there's a lot in the book about kids running errands and parents will say, well, it's just, our neighbor is just not safe or she's just not ready. Okay. But she's not ready maybe to ride her bike all the way to school or to ride to the market and back, but maybe she's ready to go into the market by herself. Right. Or, or bike halfway or, you know, after she crosses, you help her cross a busy street, right? Like exactly. It's not about canned. It's about like, let's figure out a way that you can do it that fits your skill skill level right and then what happens is over time that skill gets bigger and you have a kid that can go all the way to the market and back right instead of having a kid when they're 12 don't know how to cross the street Mm. you know which is what we end up here um 
So yeah, it's not, I like that. It's not about can't, but it's like, how can we adjust the situation so that the kid can participate? The kid can, can, can do it. So don't, so be protective, but don't be overly protective of the kid, essentially. I mean, just don't be stupid, right? I mean, like, like, (laughs) I think, I think you're right. I mean, like, it's like, you know, it's like Rosie one time was like climbing on our roof and clearly like Rosie should not be climbing on, you know, four story roof. Right. But like, but okay. What is that telling me? What is she trying to tell me? She needs more freedom. She needs more adventure. She needs more risk. Right. And so it's like kind of watching them and figuring out like, what's going on here? You know, what is, you know, and then figuring out a way that they can do what they're trying to do and in, in a safer way, or they can grow a little bit. Like we gave Rosie like a steak knife when she was like two and she was like cutting tomatoes and cutting things, you know, and now she uses, she's six and now she uses a regular knife. You know, we slowly like built up to it, you know, or the parent will, one of the interesting things is parents will, will demonstrate to kids like, you know, why, why you, why you can't go near the fire. Yeah. You know, here it's, we would just get rid of the fire, but like, no, if the, if the mom burns himself on the stove or does, look, you know, this is what the fire does, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, so the kid doesn't have to burn themselves to learn that they can, you can demonstrate it through your life. You can, you can teach them hot, you can teach them sharp, right? Um, but it takes, it's slow. These things are slow. And, and that's why using those little kind of baby steps is important because that's how you grow safely, right? It's like slowly kind of lengthening the cord instead of just throwing them out there, you, yeah. you know, interestingly, Rosie loves being at the pool, but she never wanted to put her head under. And people were always like, well, you have to give her swimming lessons. And I, she didn't want to. And I was like, well, let's just see what happens if I just keep taking her to the pool and, you know, kind of when she wants to do something more being there or help facilitate that. And, you know, she's six and a lot of parents are like, Oh, she has to look, she has to take swimming lessons. You know, this is getting too late, you know, kids. And lo and behold this year, after like 10 trips to the pool, she started putting her head under. Then she started, you know, using her arms. <laughs> and it was just like, we had no lessons, but it was just her being there modeling with the other kids and then you know a little bit of help when she needed it right like a little bit of like but no instruction mm-hmm. you know which i think some parents would find hard to believe the same thing with the bike yeah no instruction she just watched and pr- tried and watched and you know every now and then i would go out there and hold her a little bit but like that's it you know i mean when i was growing up we had a pool in the backyard so essentially my my way of learning how to swim was being put in the shallow end. At first you have floaties, right? Right. Right. Once you get a little bit more confident, you take them off and then you stay in the shallow end for a little bit until you build up more confidence to go into the deeper end. And that's exactly right. Builds up to going underwater and staying underwater and like feeling more confident to stay under there for a long period of time, probably too, too long. (laughs) Uh, And then it's like, with with a bike thing, you have training wheels for a little right. bit and then you wean yourself up. You, you fall off a couple of times and that's, that's all right. We should allow kids to fail sometimes. And to, oh, they're, they're built, they're built to yeah. learn this way. Like in many cultures, the word for teaching and learning is the same. So if the kid is like doing something, like you say, like in the deep end, trying to go under, you know, maybe the, the mom is sitting there making sure if it goes under too long, she's going to grab him. Right. Like then again, don't be stupid. Yeah. Um, but the kid, they would say the kid is teaching themselves, mm. right? And that is how kids have evolved to learn is through this like autonomous exploration with some modeling. And actually a lot of times other kids are way better models than the parent. And I think that's really how Rosie learned was by watching like the eight-year-old, right? Because the eight-year-old is way closer to her skill and there's data on this than I am, right? So the eight-year-old, and I even like enlisted the, the older kids. I was like, the eight-year-old, I was like, oh yeah, you got to teach Rosie how to swim show her how to swim, you know? And of course she wasn't doing very much, but you know, like enlist those, those other kids, it's great for both ends, right? The young ones learn and the older ones feel empowered and irresponsible. Right. And they, so I love that story about your swimming because I don't think many people believe it. Kids, they do not need lessons. No. <laughs> they really, really don't for very few things in life. Do they need lessons? I totally agree with you, Michaeline. I know I've got to let you go in just a moment, but I've got yes. one final question okay. for you, if that's okay. Yes. My, this is my all-time favorite question. I love asking all my guests at the very end. 
It is a hypothetical one, but I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100. All your friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll call it magic for the sake of argument. But they've been able to get it and show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) That's a crazy question. (laughs) I mean, if I had my druthers right now, I would make like a documentary about the parents in the book. (laughs) I would. I really want to. And people ask me for this. I, I feel like. That's what I would want. I would want a documentary about other people. The parents in the book are amazing. The moms in the Yucatan, the moms in the and the dads in the Arctic, the dads in the in Tanzania. Their skills at raising children are in, incredible. You know, they are masters at it. And compared to to many parents in Western society, and and I don't think that that's been valued enough. And I I think some of it's hard that, that seeing it would like really enrich the experience. You know, so. So I kind of skirted the question, but <laughs> <laughs> people find you, Michaeline. I think on Twitter you've got a website. You've got your book, Hunt Gather, and uh, Parents, which is a great book. Everyone needs to go and get it. Uh, Michaeline, I've got to bring you back on another later day because there's so many more topics to cover. But thank you so much for joining me today on the Story Box Podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. I love talking about the dog. I'm going to write about that now. <laughs> I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the story box. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>